So we've been going through uh, a sermon series over the last few weeks uh, called Alive, Are You Really Living? And I want to continue that. Uh, and a thought has been on my mind for months now. Um, there's a longer quote I will spare you this morning, and I'll give you the shortened version. But this has been kind of replaying in my mind for a while now. And it's from author Philip Yancey, and he defines faith this way. He says, faith is paranoia in reverse. Faith is paranoia in reverse. Think of someone who is paranoid. They are cynical. They are skeptical. They are protective. They are fearful. They're always on the defensive. The, the bright side to someone who is paranoid is, well, I'm not dead yet. It, and doesn't this explain just about everyone that you know? Maybe you wouldn't be classified as paranoid. You're not going to be put on medication. But aren't we all a little bit cynical, a little bit skeptical, protective, fearful? Isn't our default to be defensive rather than receptive? Someone who is paranoid sees everyone and everything as their enemy. The default assumption is that you, whoever is not me, is up to something. And I've got to keep my eye out for you. Our default assumption is not when we see someone, hey, I bet they would make my life better. I should find ways to incorporate this stranger into my life because I bet God has given them something that would make my life better. Our default is, who is that? And why didn't anyone teach them how to properly clean themselves or, or dress? Or We need to stay far away from that person. We're all a little bit paranoid. We're all a little bit cynical, skeptical, protective, fearful, and defensive. But is this the way that disciples of Jesus Christ are supposed to operate? All right, there was one no. There was, at the first service, there was one no. We let that person leave. Everyone else had to stay. I didn't hear any no's, so you guys can't leave, all right? No, that's not how disciples of Jesus are supposed to, to live. We, of all people, should be hopeful, trusting. We should be vulnerable, loving, and receptive. We should view no one as our enemies, and our default assumption is not that you are up to something and I have to watch you. Our default assumption should be God is up to something. I wonder how he's going to use you to do it. Today, I'd like to continue our series, Alive, Are You Really, really Living? And we've heard from uh, Mark several times. We've heard from Jim over the past few weeks about how Jesus has come to give us life. And in many ways, we have failed to embrace the abundant life that Jesus said he came to offer us. One way that I believe we fail to truly live is when we live with enemies. I believe that one of the ways that Jesus has come to give us life is by offering us freedom from fear and a freedom from having enemies. He's called us to walk by faith, not by sight. He's called us to live with paranoia in reverse. But there are two lies, there's at least two lies, that we believe that stop us from living like this. And you may not say these things out loud. You may not even word them like I'm about to. But functionally, we all do or at least all have believed these lies. And they are, some enemies deserve our fear. 
that there are some people, there are some things out there that are bad, and they're so bad, we should be afraid of them. And the second lie that we believe is that some enemies deserve our hate. That there are some people, there are some things out there that are so bad that they deserve to be hated. Now, those are the lies that we believe, so again, you're not allowed to leave because then you'll think that's the takeaway. But have you ever had an enemy? Have you ever, maybe like, not an enemy like a a movie villain like Batman and the Joker, but an enemy, someone in your life who just made life worse for you, that you wanted to avoid them at all costs. Their very existence just made your life worse. Two people come to mind for me, and they're both here this morning. No, I'm just kidding. <coughs> but, but two people come to mind for me. In high school, there was a kid in my class, uh, and uh, my graduating class was 27 people. So it was a, a small class. One of the kids in the class, him and I, we just did not get along at all. And like most high school rivalries, a girl was involved. Over the course of uh, our freshman and sophomore years, we were both interested in this girl, and the rivalry began. And then over the course of high school, uh, I dated her for a bit, and he dated her. And so for four years, the tension was just palpable. I felt like I was living in a soap opera. There's only 27 people. Everyone knows what's going on. You can't hide it from everyone. And so every morning, we just walked into, like, there's just hate in the air. Um, and, you know, we, our lives were made worse because of this. Neither of us were really living because we, we couldn't enjoy our time. I would make a joke and everybody would laugh except for him. He'd be... He couldn't enjoy it. He couldn't have a fun time if I was a part of that fun time. There were events that were either surrounding him or I knew he would be there, and I decided I don't want to be a part of that. I missed out on things because of my disdain, because of my hate for my enemy. The second enemy that comes to mind is a former manager that I had while I was working in restaurants. And I've mentioned before that I'm pretty staunchly anti-confrontation. I don't like confrontations. There are a few exceptions, and those exceptions tend to be when I'm rebelling against some authority figure in my life. And if you've ever worked as a server, you probably know that you mostly work for yourself. You're employed by the restaurant, but you're there for you. You're there to make money, and you make money by lying to your, I mean, by, <laughs> by making your customers happy right? That's how you make money. And so you're there for you. And then there's a general manager of this restaurant who pays you $2 an hour and acts like he's the hero. He's not. He just makes me do annoying things. And so he was an easy enemy for me. Our personalities definitely clashed, but the nature of our positions at the job were at odds. We were unspoken enemies. And shifts where he was working were just far less enjoyable for me. I think if we got him up here, he would say shifts that you were working were far less enjoyable. And that's fair. Uh, I actually still occasionally will have a dream that I'm walking into the restaurant and he is mad at me because I missed my last shift. Uh, So that enemy still takes up residence. Pray for me. Um, But these enemies in the grand scheme of things are pretty trivial. 
I can look back on them and see that both of these enemies were really born out of an immaturity, that they weren't threatening my life. Maybe they made it less convenient for me, but they weren't real enemies. And perhaps you can relate to that kind of enemy, an irrational enemy that given enough time, you can see it wasn't that big of a deal, that you've grown in maturity and and you recognize that they weren't really your enemy. But there are others of you who are here who have had real-life enemies. For more serious reasons, maybe people have actually sought to bring you harm and to threaten you. Then there are enemies who definitely affect our lives, but they're much more distant. They are, they're less personal to us. And then some of our enemies aren't even humans. They are ideas or circumstances or diseases, etc. And so today, when I talk about enemies, I'm using it in the broadest sense that I can. I want us to go back to my definition of paranoia as being cynical, skeptical, protective, fearful, and defensive. Who or what elicits those responses from you? Who or what brings up those emotions in your life? They are your enemies. And as I said, you likely believe one or two lies about those enemies. Some of them deserve your fear. Some of them deserve your hate. We're all familiar with the many times in Scripture that we are told to fear not. We are familiar with Jesus' words to love our enemies. But we are all so quick to justify our particular fears, our particular hatred, as being unique and special and maybe even necessary. Either consciously or unconsciously, we believe that, yeah, we should not hate and we should not fear. Unless, of course, you fear or hate the right people, the right things. Then it is justified. Perhaps it's your neighbor who plays music too loud and decides to have all of their family fights outside. Perhaps it's your boss who demeans you or simply takes you for granted. Perhaps it's the person who votes differently than you or the politician that they voted for. At some level, we all believe that there are some enemies who deserve our fear and deserve our hate. And counter to what the Bible tells us, we believe that there are right people to fear and there are right people to hate. So today, I want to explore the biblical truths that I believe can set us free from those lies. The biblical truths that can allow us to enter into life and life abundantly. A life that is free of fear and a life that is free of enemies. And I think it begins simply by believing it's possible. Because we live in a world that is so hostile towards one another. We live in a world that is so paranoid, that is cynical, skeptical, defensive, fearful. We have to believe that you can live at peace. That is a possibility for you. You can live free of enemies. So let's start with the first lie. Some enemies deserve our fear. You've probably all heard the often repeated phrase that sex sells. But sex just gets our attention. Actually, those who study marketing have come to find that sex normally distracts from the point of the product. So it doesn't actually help sell, it distracts. It's fear that moves product. You want to sell something, get people 
scared of not having it. I'd argue that a large chunk of our economy and perhaps our entire political system is based off of fear. Studies have shown that effective marketing begins with fear. And this isn't a new phenomenon. In fact, those who have studied the use of fear in advertising point to a, of all things, a Listerine ad, a campaign that started in the 1920s. This was a pivotal moment in fear-based sales marketing. The ad campaign featured Jane, a beautiful young woman who struggled to get married because she had bad breath. In the seven years following that campaign, Listerine saw its revenue grow from $115,000 to over $8 million. The fear of bad breath could have earned you $8 million if you just had gotten in front of Listerine. And since then, we have seen an influx of fear-based advertising. Turn on your favorite news channel, and I bet it'll take you less than 10 minutes to find out who you should fear. For those of you who watch live TV, you'll get to a point. These things are called commercials. And when you watch commercials, you'll have a whole new list of things to be afraid of. We are prone to fear. And advertisers know this, and they take advantage of it. The adversary, Satan, knows this, and he takes advantage of it. Your heavenly father knows this, but he doesn't take advantage of it. He asks you to overcome it, but he doesn't ask you to do it by yourself. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, has two letters that he writes to a young man named Timothy, his mentee. And in 2 Timothy 1.7, this is what Paul says to Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. As the people of God, we are not to be a people of fear. We've been given a spirit, but that spirit is not a spirit of fear. Intuitively, the opposite of fear is courage, right? So we've been given a spirit of courage. But that's not what Paul says. Should we be courageous? I do think that we should be courageous. We have reason to be courageous. But when Paul says that we've been given a spirit who opposes fear, he doesn't say we've been given a spirit of courage. He says that we've been given a spirit of power. This word is used frequently in the New Testament. One place that I'd like to point out is Acts 1.8. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, I'm going to go, but you will receive power. That power would come down on them and then they would receive the Holy Spirit. Its uses elsewhere in the New Testament are often in relation to miraculous works. So this power, the spirit of power that opposes fear, isn't one of brute strength that we can use to just destroy all of our enemies. But rather, it's a supernatural power used to bring healing and wholeness to the world. So we've been given a spirit of that kind of power. We've been given a spirit of love, and we'll talk about love more in a moment. Um, But the third thing that Paul says is the spirit of self-discipline. And this might be the most surprising. What does self-discipline have to do with fear? And I think we know from our experience, and we can assume that Paul seems to believe that when we give in to fear, we also lack self-control. 
Fear can cause us to do things that we would otherwise not do. Fear causes us to act outside of our core values and our core principles. Paul encourages Timothy to develop a life centered on the Spirit so that he is not tempted to abandon his principles in moments of fear. Fear is not something that God just tells us, get over it, stop being afraid. Instead, we've been given the Spirit of God, which is one of power, love, and self-discipline. And not only are we given a spirit that opposes fear, but we've also been given victory over any of our potential enemies. The same Paul who told Timothy that we have not been given a spirit of fear writes to the church in Rome, the church at the epicenter of world power and on the brink of mass persecution. This is what Paul has to say to them in Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it God who justifies? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? Someone. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors in him who loved us. What do we have to fear? I think of the prophet Isaiah, that no weapon against us shall, be, shall prevail because we have victory. We are more than conquerors. If God, if a God who not only died, but more than that was raised to life, a God who defeated death is for us, who or what can be against us? Here's how the psalmist put it in Psalm 27, verses 1 to 3, and then we'll skip down to verses 13 and 14. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Then down in verse 13, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord and be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Our confidence is in the victory brought to us from God. We need not fear. We need not get defensive and fight. We sang about it this morning. How do we fight our battles? We don't. God fights them for us. His flesh and blood for us. That's how I fight my battles. That my battles have already been fought. God has given us the victory. There is no enemy that can take that victory away. And of course, this is true in an ultimate sense. 
we will, if you trust in Christ and his sacrifice, you will spend eternity with him. But the psalmist doesn't, isn't just hopeful for the next life. He says, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Have you seen the goodness of God in your life? Are you waiting for it to show up? You won't have to wait until you die. You will see it in this life. But you must not be blinded by fear. Instead, you must submit yourself to the Spirit who brings power, love, and self-discipline. We believe that some enemies are worthy of our fear, but all of our enemies have been defeated by the cross. As the people of God, we are to live in such a way that bears witness to that victory. And it invites other people to step into that victory. If we are living in fear of poverty, of persecution, of rejection, fear of oppression, that does not give witness to people who have earned or who have been given a victory. But when we live full of the Spirit, when we live with a supernatural power, with a self-sacrificial love and a countercultural self-discipline, this testifies to living with victory. When we refuse to be cynical, skeptical, protective, fearful, and defensive, and instead we live by the fruit of the Spirit, we are giving witness to a risen king. The other lie that we believe is that some enemies deserve our hate. So maybe you say, okay, Dave, you've convinced me. We don't need to be afraid of people, ideologies, government policies, or anything for that matter because we live under the reigning king, Jesus. But we still have enemies, and we should hate them because that's what enemies are for. We're supposed to hate our enemies. Okay, maybe you wouldn't say that, but I'm guessing that you believe it, that you live as if it's true. Those who are opposed to you at some level, they deserve your hate. But again, this this series is called Alive. Are you really living? And if you fear someone or if you hate someone, are you really living? Or are you allowing them to control you in one way or another? And if you're being controlled by anything other than God, then you are not free. And if you are not free, then you are not really living. You can go and listen to Mark's message from two weeks ago for more on freedom. But I've tied fear and hate together because I think that they are similar. If we fear someone or something for long enough, we begin to hate it. We begin to resent it. We see it as evil and only evil. We see no redemptive quality about that person or thing. We cannot bring ourselves to wish them well. We can't hope for their redemption, and we find no joy in them at all. They move from being humans made in the image of God to being monsters who must be defeated. This typically but not always happens with people who are living at a distance from us. It can happen with a parent, a family member, or a spouse, but the full level of hate usually doesn't occur until we separate from them when they are far from us and we no longer have to view them as humans, but we begin to think and hate and we turn them into monsters. And sometimes this separation between people who were once close to us is very necessary for our physical and mental safety. Sometimes we have to separate from people. But the hatred that often comes with that separation is not necessary, nor is it healthy for us. 
But it is a lot easier to hate people from a distance when they don't quite feel real to you. Again, perhaps it's a boss or your boss's boss who you have limited interactions with, a neighbor who you've heard stories about and you've had a few bad uh, interactions with, but they mostly they just live over there and you, you want them even further. Or maybe it's a public figure, a politician, an outspoken celebrity who you see as the embodiment of an evil that you detest. Yet this hatred, regardless of who or what it is aimed at, is in stark contrast to the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew 5, starting in verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It's probably a whole nother sermon right there. Uh, but for now, just suffice it to say that Jesus here is telling us not to resist the evil one, not to respond in kind. That when someone acts evilly or aggressively or with violence toward us, that we don't respond by escalating the violence, but we don't respond by even meeting that violence. Instead, we are to de-escalate by ending the violence altogether. He continues on in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, I believe that what he's telling us is that functionally, as followers of Christ, we don't have enemies. That when you love someone, they stop being your enemy. The object of your love cannot be your enemy. Now, if we ask them, they might say that you're their enemy, but they are not ours. They are objects of our love. So how do you live a life free from enemies? I think it's as simple and as complicated as loving them. You love them. You pray for them. All of them. And this changes the way that we view other people, that those who were once out to get us are now objects of our love. Psalm 25, or excuse me, Psalm 23, verse 5, uh, which is referenced at the beginning of the song, This is How I Fight My Battles, says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And we, we read that verse and we are comforted. We think of probably the first lie, right, that some enemies deserve our fear. We think, well, God can set a table before my enemies. I have nothing to fear. And I think that is true, but I think this also is a testimony to our hatred for our enemies. Here's what I mean. I think that God sets a table for our enemies, not for us to eat in front of them and say, ha, I can eat and you think you're coming after me. I'm enjoying this feast. But he sets a table for us to invite our enemies to dine with us. In his book, Love Over Fear, author Dan White says, the entire ministry of Jesus deconstructs the sentiment in Psalm 23 and reconstructs an explosive idea. 
Jesus will prepare tables in the presence of enemies, but rather than shaming them, he is inviting them. Jesus dines with tax collectors, cheaters, Pharisees, Roman soldiers, zealots, and prostitutes. This is self-emptying love in the life of Christ, making space for others unlike him, making space for those who are at odds with him to dwell and dine at the table. Instead of seeking protection from our enemies so that we can feast, perhaps the table is set before us so that we can feast with our enemies. Instead of viewing others with a skepticism and a cynicism, we are to be paranoid in reverse. We assume that they are for us, that they have something to offer us, and so we invite them to sit at our table and dine with us. This is the way of Jesus. This is paranoia in reverse. Instead of seeing enemies, tax collectors, Pharisees, Romans, zealots, and prostitutes, Jesus doesn't see them as enemies. He sees them as people who are worthy and valuable assets in the kingdom of God. Is that how you see your enemies? One last passage from Romans again. So again, to the church in Rome, Paul writes this in chapter 12, starting in verse 18 down to verse 20. Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, some of you are like, yes, finally. You're getting... You're getting to the good stuff, Dave. We've been waiting. I will do whatever you want if I get to pour burning coals on the heads of my enemies. I won't hate them. I won't fear them. Just give me the coals. But I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. I don't think that's what the psalmist that he's quoting has in mind. Borrowing again from Dan White and his book, Love Over Fear, he hearkens, uh, when talking about these verses, he hearkens back to another use of burning coals. This one from the book of Isaiah in chapter 6. Isaiah finds himself before God on his throne and he says, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, He touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Here, we have an act of burning coals touching someone's head, coming in contact with someone's body. But it's not an act of aggression. It's not an act of violence. It's not a preemptive attack. Instead, here, the act of burning coals being placed on someone's body is an act of mercy and forgiveness. That Isaiah, before God, sees that he is not worthy, that he deserves the, the previous idea we had of burning coals. He's like, I should be burned up. I should be done away with. But instead, the burning coal is used to bring healing, to bring forgiveness. When Paul tells us to live at peace with all men, to feed our hungry enemies, and to give drink to our thirsty enemies, he is telling us to be like God. Our preemptive acts of care and love will be like a coal touching Isaiah's lips. They are acts of forgiveness and mercy. They are used to awaken our enemies to a different way of living. Heaping hot coals is not having the best insult in a Facebook argument. It's not arguing with your uncle at Thanksgiving dinner. The hot coals passage is about awakening our enemies through affection. 
meeting their meanness, their hostility with our kindness and our love. When we do this, we cannot manipulate someone's response. We can't be sure that they get it. But we can heap hot coals on their head, hoping that they feel the love. In recent years, I've heard many Christians decry the chaos of the world. And understandably so. It is chaotic. But many of those same Christians have allowed the chaos to, from out there to enter in here. That we've been living chaotic as well. We've been living fearful. We've allowed ourselves to grow fearful of the other. We live in fear, but we justify it. Our fears are the ones we should have. Our hatred is the hatred that we should have. And yet we condemn others for the fears that they have. We will hate what we fear. And our fear has turned to hatred, and once again, we justify it. And this isn't living. This is a tool of the enemy who Jesus said comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And when we live in fear and when we live in hatred, our Christ-likeness is killed. When we live in fear and hatred, our joy is stolen. When we live in fear and hatred, our ability to point people to the reigning king is destroyed. But whether we are good at pointing people towards that king or not, he sits on the throne. That king came to give us life and to give us life ab abundantly. We can live at peace. We can live free from enemies. We don't have to live cynically like the rest of the world does. We don't have to live seeking to fight for God. The battle is won. And in the security of that victory, we can live giving testimony to our risen king. We can be trusting. We can be hopeful. We can be vulnerable and we can be hospitable. We can make room even for our enemies at our table. And when we do this, we point to a reality that our king who defeated death is alive, is reigning. And you are welcome to join us at his table. Would you pray with me? Lord, would your spirit do a work in us right now? We are to be people of the cross, people of the resurrection, people of victory. And yet far too many of us are living scared, are living fearful, are living with hatred. We look out in the world and all we see is enemies. Give us your eyes, Lord. Help us to love our enemies, to pray for them. Help us to heap burning coals on their head, not in vengeance, not in anger, but with our love with our preemptive acts of care and mercy, that we would meet a hostile world with kindness, with love, with gentleness. Lord, do a work in us. Show us where the, the seeds of fear have taken root. Help us to spot the people in our lives, the, the things in our lives that we are allowing to feed the fear and help us to uproot them. Regardless of how painful that uprooting is, Lord, would we tear those roots out? Lord, would you help us to lay down our weapons and to pick up our crosses, to deny ourselves and to show the world that the way to victory is through the cross, it's through death. It's through denial. For every one of the fears, there's an empty grave. Lord, we, we want to live as people 
of the resurrection. People who live giving testimony to your victory. So I pray, Lord, that we would not believe the lies, that we would not fall into fear, that we would not fall into hatred, but instead that we would make room at the banquet feast of our King for even our enemies, that we would invite them to dine with us. And it's in the name of our risen King Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.